After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. There's an old saying about preaching that every sermon, ideally, should be both a resurrection and a crucifixion. And it's not just talking about the resurrection and crucifixion of Jesus. Of course, that's got to be talked about, right? This is our salvation. Christ dies for our sins, frees us from the power of of sin and death and the evil one. And in rising, anyone who looks to him in faith will be saved. you got to talk about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus to have a sermon, actually, historically speaking, in the church. But this is actually, this phrase means something else. Every sermon should have a resurrection and crucifixion. What it means is you want some comfort in there. Because, like, the word gospel itself means good news. It's not all supposed to be just, like, a drag to hear Uh, somebody stand up and talk about Jesus, whoever they are. Um, But prior to the the comforting word, there also has to be a challenging word. Because the challenging word is always the context for the good news. Bad news is the context for good news. So even a, a cutting word, we could say, is necessary for like the crack to be created for the light to come in. So I'll give you an example, of a couple examples of this. The scriptures themselves talk about the scriptures Uh, Like Psalm 19, for example, says, the words of God are sweeter than honey. So it's comforting. That sounds really good. Uh, Hebrews 4, the word of God is a sword. That's not as awesome. What's it talking about? Well, I'll give you you a few examples. Some, Some of them we've seen in the Gospel of John since we've been looking at these encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of John. I'll give you one first that's not because the Gospels are rich with these. There's a story in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about a rich young man who comes to Jesus. And uh, he, he came to Jesus and said, I want eternal life. I want you to show me what I need to do to achieve eternal life. And Jesus, it says in, in Mark's Gospel, I believe, he loved him before he spoke. 
loving him, Jesus said, you rich young man, for you, you got to give everything away. Everything you own. And then come and follow me. And he went away sad. Before, before he was able to receive the comfort of who Jesus really was, Jesus looked into his heart and knew this is the one thing that this guy's really hoping in. For you, it might be something else. But if this is like on the throne of his heart, it's got to be unseated if the living God's going to take his place there. And that's not a comfortable thing. The scriptures say the heart is a temple. Think about this. The human heart is a place of worship. And something is enthroned there that you fiercely protect, and so do I. And it's killing us. And God means to go right to that place and take his place there to set us free. This is John 8. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. What's he talking about? He's talking about setting you free from that thing that you kind of can't stop clinging to, but you know is killing you. If, if you don't relate to that at all, if you've never experienced any kind of addiction, any kind of experience of saying, why can't I stop doing that? Or maybe you're just only able to see it in other people. Like, why can't they stop doing that? That's what he's talking about. You ever try to get a needle away from an addict? It is not different from trying to get a rich person away from their money. It is not different at all. It's just as painful. It makes them cringe just as much. They both want it and they can't stand it. And Jesus says, that's what I'm here for. That kind of good news that has to cut. It, ha it has to happen every time for there to be the least bit of light to come into your life. And it's not a once-for-all thing. We're talking about the first-time encounters of Jesus with people in the Gospel of John, and there's a lot of them. Nathaniel, Nicodemus, St. Fotini, who we may mainly know as uh, the Samaritan woman. Today, a paralytic. For Nathaniel... He kind of thought popularity and platform was an indicator of worth when it came to rabbis. Challenging word for him. And a radical welcome. Nicodemus really loved his position. He was kind of warming up to Jesus just to get a little bit, a little bit close to the famous guy of the moment. Challenging word for him as well as a radical welcome. For the Samaritan woman, it, it seemed to be something like her shame. It was so close to her identity. And he went for it and offered her radical, amazing love and grace. Let's see what it is for this paralytic we read about today. He gets the comforting word, but also the challenging word. And those are just the two points that I'm going to give you. The comforting word of Jesus to this guy. Maybe you see, maybe the Holy Spirit will show you something of yourself in this guy. There's nothing I can do about that other than to point clearly at where it seems to be plain in the text. You see if you relate to it yourself. The comforting word of Jesus and then the, the challenging word. Here's the comforting word. Context first. Uh, we read in verse 3 of John 5 that uh, there is a, and let this word sink in, a multitude of invalids at the scene. It's at a gate of Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate. What do you think about when you think of sheep? It's the, it's the gate they brought the animals through. It didn't smell great. It's not a place where the privileged entered the city. It's probably the place you brought your animals when they were entering into the city. 
it's the smelly place where he entered the city. And it's, there's something about it also, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's on the fringe. Not a place for the rich, not a place for the privileged. And Jesus passes by. As would, we know this is a festival, the, the, at John 5, we don't hear exactly which festival it is. Sometimes we know what festival it is when Jesus keeps coming back to Jerusalem when the crowds are there. Here we don't. But we do know all these pilgrims were coming to town, and they would have, in order to pass by that part of the city with their animals, would have had to see this multitude, multitude of invalids. Think about the seasons of our city's recent history where there's just a multitude of tents right next to $500,000 construction. Like a multitude. Like, what are we going to do about this multitudes? Same thing in Fairmount, you know. 2020, the tent cities. You get in the middle of it, you look around, and you're like, this is, this is a lot of people. Some of you did. That's the scene. Verse 5, we get that this guy's been there 38 years. 38 years as an invalid among the multitude near the smelly gate. And Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? Why does Jesus ask this question? Actually, Jesus asks these kind of frustrating questions a lot. Why do you want to, do, do, do you want to be healed, he says. And so, like, what would you be thinking if you were this man? No, I want to sit here for another 38 years or until I die, which probably will be sooner, at the sheep gate being unhealed. Why does Jesus ask this man, do you want to be healed? It seems that Jesus' point is to draw out the man's own perception of his situation and his expectation of what Jesus can do for him. Interestingly, uh, if, you, if you look in the text, the man never actually answers Jesus' question. He never says, yes, I want to be healed. He doesn't answer his question at all. All he says is he tells him a, a story, and actually you've got to read between the lines. There's actually, in the ancient the most ancient manuscripts, there's some variant readings of, of some verses that may or may not have been in the original text that explain what's going on between the lines. I don't know if you were confused the first time through when you read verse 7. When Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. What does that have to do with anything? Well, apparently there, there was a tradition maybe a superstition of sorts in that place, that the pool would be stirred up by an angel. And uh, the first person to rush in out of the multitude, one person, if they rushed in somehow or had somebody carry them in because they're an invalid, they would be the first one to get healed. Weird. Yeah, I know it's weird. But what's the point? I think the point is something like this. The man never answers Jesus' question do I want to be healed? What he does tell him is, this is the only way that healing is possible. Isn't that what he says? He says, all right, look, the only way I can be healed is this. This has to happen. This has to happen. This has to happen. And that's not going to happen. So the only reality I have is never being healed. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And this man says, here's reality as I understand it. That's the point. This is the story I'm living in. And this is the only way it can happen. This, there's no other hope. This is the only way it can work. He's hopeless. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he says, there's no hope. If you've experienced hopelessness, 
I mean real hopelessness. Or if you know someone who has experienced real hopelessness, there are always at least two things going on. First, you are a fortune teller. All due respect, I don't mean that as like a barb, but like, it's true. You are reading the future. You're saying, this is my situation and it can't change. And in that sense, hopelessness is kind of playing God. It is. Second thing that's going on, if you're truly hopeless, you're creating a closed universe where God cannot intrude. You're telling the future, and you're creating a situation where no other future possibility is going to enter in. And so the question of this text Jesus speaks a comforting word into, like, get up, be healed. What is your hope as you see it? As you sit here this morning, personally, maybe as a, as a Christian, as a spouse, as a friend, in your job, as a citizen in a hurting city, what is your hope as you see it? And is it the same as the hope that God has for you? Is it the same as your hope as God sees it? Um, Steve Huber got together. Uh, he's the director of the Liberty Network. We're all individual churches, if you're new here. Own leadership, independent churches uh, affiliated with uh, different denominations. But we partner together to, to plant churches and to strengthen them. And he's the director of the, of the uh, Liberty Network, if you've not met him. And he was on a boat last summer. And uh, you're not going to catch me on a boat. So this is not a story I could tell. Uh, I could say that I relate to at all. But he had terrible seasickness. It was a deep sea fishing off the Atlantic coast expedition. And uh, he was, not to be too colorful, he lost his lunch. And um, he kept kind of heaving. And it was some intense wave, some intense wake. And um, he was told by someone who had better sea legs, the trick is, in the waves, you just have to keep your eyes fixed on the horizon. And, uh, and the sermon illustration becomes immediately clear. Um, it's absolutely true. So I'm told by uh, seafarers and by people much, much wiser than me on this Christian journey. Um, the waves will eat your lunch every time. And there is something about the horizon that is fixed and unchanging that brings the context you need to have any kind of perspective. And that is all about hope. This man is all waves, no horizon. And so am I, the vast majority of the time, and so are you. And into this story about waves and no horizon comes this healing. And this word of Christ, I'm just going to jump to the last word, which I think is fascinating, where Jesus says, to a man with no horizon and all waves, he says, you know, God's working all the time. I need you to let that phrase kind of settle in for a second. God is working until now. He means God never stops working. You know he's doing a new thing right now in the hopeless, fake reality we've created. You know he's always actively doing something right 
now, and it's ours to say, Lord, what? If you make it abundantly clear, or if I just need to know that and be still, like Mary in our confession text this morning, you're always doing a new thing with me. God is working and creating. Uh, Just to show you some of the depth of this passage that I'm not going to get to this morning, I'm going to move into that second point, the challenging word. He actually ends on the challenging word. But just a few notes in this passage about God working and God creating all the time. This is ultimately a passage about creation and new creation. And I'm going to show you how. Uh, First of all, whenever you see Jesus healing someone, it's a kind of a mini new creation. It's usually not random. It's usually not him just like creating something out of thin air or doing some impressive, like jaw-dropping, abstract miracle. It's usually taking something broken or wounded or dead and restoring it. Almost all of Jesus' signs are like this. It's not universally true, but it's largely true. It's kind of like a mini new creation. Here, something very good, a human being who could walk, is brought back to better than original form. There's all these other kinds of creation hues in John 5. Did you see Christ heals with a word just as God created with a word at the beginning? All this takes place on the Sabbath day, which we first read about in Genesis 2, right after those six days of creation. The man ends up in a temple at the end of the story, worshiping. Remember, temples in the scriptures are really just these small working models of new creation. The world's broken. The world's full of sin. It's apart from God. Temples are these places where you can come and God intervenes and creates some space to be with his people. Here, the hope horizon, the horizon of God's new creation bursts upon this man's waves of suffering. And he speaks a word of comfort. Your hope is not what you think it is. It's much, much, much better. That's the comforting word. Secondly and finally, uh, and I'll end on this, the challenging word. And I'm looking at verses 13 and 14. After the healing, Jesus sees this man in the temple and says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I know that's kind of a galling statement for you to read. This guy was an invalid among multitudes of invalids for 38 years waiting for nothing, he thought. And Jesus says, now that he's healed, sin no more so that something way worse doesn't happen to you. Like, what is worse than that? What is worse than waiting for 38 years as an invalid? Something. What's clear is something. Christ believes there are things much worse than 38 years paralyzed at the sheep gate. Some of the earliest interpreters, uh, John Chrysostom, 4th century, into the 5th century, just as one, thought this was referring to hell. And, and it's possible. Hell is the ultimate separation from God, from his goodness, from his love, in eternity. And if it does mean that, it also means a few other things. On a smaller scale, isn't all sin basically a chosen separation from God? Jesus says, sin no more. If all sin basically tells God, leave the room with your hope, your rules, your presence, your possibilities, leave the room. That's what sin does. That's what volitional sin always does. God, 
you're dismissed. It's a temporary moment of insanity that we all actually know very, very well. Sin tells God to leave his place beside you and on the horizon. Jesus is saying the worst of all possible worlds is living a life that closes off the saving help of God. That's what he's saying. That's the worst thing, is to live a life even for a moment that closes off the saving help of God. My wife and I, a couple days ago, were on a walk by the really beautiful river walk that starts at Penn Treaty and goes behind the casino and uh, all the way down really to Washington Avenue in South Philly. And uh, we were behind the casino and I really had to go to the bathroom and uh, went to the casino because they have bathrooms there. And I had been in there before, it had been a while, but it was, it was pretty early in the morning actually. And um, I had never been in there that early in the morning. And uh, I walked in, they take your ID and you go through a metal detector and I'm trying to find my bearings, which is kind of hard to do if you've ever been into a casino. And ultimately found the restrooms. And um, oh my goodness. These people, there is no way they are bigger sinners than I am. But you ever, you ever be in a casino at around 8.45 in the morning with people who you can just tell have been there all night? It's a, it's a, it's a scene. It kind of like it, it, well, it cuts you a little bit. And the way the casinos are designed is there's no windows. Why? Because there is no time outside the casino. That actually doesn't help the bottom line of the casino. You don't want to know what time it is. You don't want to know the sun is rising or the sun is setting. This is your reality. You see what I'm saying? This is your reality. And you don't have to leave to get food. They even bring your drinks to you if you're having a good time and spending some time in there. Your food is here. Your restroom is here. There is no clock here. This is your whole world. This is actually very integral to the model of casinos. And I think, if I'm not laying it on too thick, a lot of us have exactly this kind of casino hope. There is no possible way that the light can shine through. And Jesus is saying, and it's hard, it's a cutting word. Do I really need to hear this, Jesus? He says, sin no more, that something worse doesn't happen to you. He's saying the worst of all possible worlds, God love you, is to live that way for even a moment. That no hope of God can burst upon your reality, whatever it is. And he has the gall to say it to this guy. He definitely has the gall to say it to you. This guy had been healed by the living God for the sake of life with the living God. Do not run back into the casino. It's totally possible to do so. Well, these would be my final words. I could say more. I would probably end up saying less. Paralytic or not, healed or not, the worst of all possible worlds is living a life that closes off the saving help of God now and in eternity. And into this situation, Jesus says, sin no more. And in other, in other words, he says it in other ways, other places, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your constructed reality to the reality that is God can do anything and that's worth hoping in. 
that's worth letting your whole life revolve around. Right now, today, stop cutting him out of your life and let the words and light and life of Christ cut you and comfort you and shine on all of it. Take the one or hundred things that you won't let him get to on the throne of your temple and let him supplant them all. This is actually how it works. A lot, of, a lot of us talk about just being stuck in our spiritual life or in a sin pattern or in a relationship pattern. And the first question always is, are we really being honest with ourselves? Is there or is there not something in our lives where we're saying, God may not go here. He may not talk to me about my finances, about my sex life, about my marriage, about my work, about my words that cut people. And when that starts to happen, I will leave. Are we really being honest with ourselves? Listen, if, there is, if he's God of everything else except for one thing, he is not God in the least. That's true. If he's God over everything except for one thing, he's not God in the least. All that means is that there is something that is very prized on the throne of your heart that you have chosen. And Jesus says, cuttingly and mercifully sin no more sin no more lest nothing worse happens to you because i love you and if you let the sun set you free you'll be free indeed in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen